Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We are in Matthew tonight. We're in chapter, we're going to actually begin uh, at the end of chapter 13 and then go through chapter 14. We'll read the text here at the beginning and then we'll get into uh, our message tonight. So if you're there, it's Matthew 13, verse 53, as we begin. It says that it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from where he was. And so Jesus now uh, moving forward from the place where he was. And it says that when he was come into his own country, so back into the region of Nazareth, it says he was come, uh, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and they said, Whence or from where has this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judah? And his sisters, are they not all here with us? Whence then or from where then has this man all these Things. They knew Jesus, they had seen him grow up in their midst, a very small town in a small country, and so they, it says in verse 57, it says that they were then offended, they were stumbled in him, but Jesus said unto them that a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house, and it says that he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now at that time, chapter 14, verse 1. It says that Herod the Tetrarch, about 70 miles south of where Jesus is in Nazareth, we go down into the region of Judea where the ruling bodies are, and it says that he heard of the fame of Jesus. So this Roman uh, prefect, the president, if you would, the White House of the land, they hear concerning Jesus up in the north, and it says that he said unto his servants, Herod does, that this, this Jesus is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Now that is a, a radical, outlandish, mystical claim for someone who has a practical and pragmatic job. And so now we get the backstory as to why he believes in this reincarnated prophet. He says, for Herod had laid hold on John, John the Baptist, And bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, to Herod, that it is not lawful for you to have her. So apparently uh, Herod had taken Philip's wife to be his own. And John reproved him for it. And so uh, Herod wanted to put him to death for it. Because that's what you do when you don't like what someone says. You just kill them. He says that he would have put him to death. But he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias, so the daughter of this woman that he took, danced before them and pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And so she, being before instructed of her mother, said what she asked for. She says, give me here the head of John the Baptist in a charger or on a platter. Now, let's just do this in style. If we're going to do something, let's do it all the way. But it says that the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake and them that sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And so he sent and he beheaded John in the prison. 
And his head was brought in a charger on a platter and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. How sick, right, is, is our people. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. And Jesus heard of it, and he departed from there. So he leaves Nazareth now when he hears this by ship into a deserted place apart. And when the people heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forward yet again and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves some food. But Jesus said unto them, They don't need to depart. You give them to eat. And so they said unto him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. Obviously not enough to feed a multitude so great. But he said, Bring them here to me. And so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed, he broke, he gave the loaves to his disciples and his disciples to the multitude, and they did all eat and were filled, literally it's glutted, and they took up of the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. So five loaves, a few fish, turn into leftovers and he it says they that had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children so a miraculous provision and it says that straightway right away Jesus constrained his disciples to get into his ship and to go before him to the other side and while he sent the multitude away and when he had sent the multitudes away he went up into a mountain apart to pray and when the evening was come he was there alone so he sent them down he himself went up but the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spoke unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, then bid me to come unto thee on the water. And Jesus said, come. And when Peter, that's funny, especially if Jesus would have known it wouldn't work. You know, <laughs> he says, but when he was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he, that is Peter, saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. And they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, you are the Son of God. And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased. And besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you tonight with your word, and Lord, as we've read it, we know there's power in it. And Lord, you said that uh, your word will prosper, and the thing whereunto you sent it, and it will accomplish what you please. So I pray that you'd fill me to speak forth what you've given me, this message, and that you would anoint our hearts to receive it, Lord, that we would hear and receive all that you want to instruct us in tonight. Lord, by your spirit, not by power or might, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The ministry of Jesus 
uh, as we're seeing it unfold before us, has a pattern uh, to it. And that pattern of Jesus in his ministry is that he will communicate something and then in some way he will demonstrate it. And so there's this mix of teaching and then showing. And so we saw that Jesus taught with authority, but then he went out from there and he immediately began to demonstrate his authority. We would see how Jesus will teach about having spiritual vision, the ability to see things that are invisible, and then Jesus will go and he'll heal someone who's blind, and he'll do something in the physical to give uh, an illustration to what he just taught that is spiritual. We'll see Jesus say and, and, and declare that he himself is the bread of life, and then he will go and he will feed a multitude with loaves and fishes, breaking and blessing. And, and so there's this, this pattern where he will say it, and then he will then show it. Well, what we saw in the last chapter in our study last week is we heard Jesus say or teach a lot of things. He taught us in the kingdom parables that we saw last week that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but yet we are living on earth. And so we kind of have this dual residency because we're in his kingdom, which is bigger, but we're still bound to the earth, which is smaller. And so because of the the contrast in cultures and currents in those two kingdoms, there are dynamics that we need to understand that we're going to have to navigate. And so Jesus gave these parables and he said that because of this situation of living in this dichotomy, you are going to experience in your life that there's going to be some fruit, but there's also going to be some thorns. You're going to see that there is some wheat, but there's also some weeds. You're going to see that the strength of your branches is going to increase as your roots go deeper, but the strength of those branches is going to be met with the foul birds of the sky that come and lodge themselves in it, taking up space. He said you're going to experience bread of satisfaction, but it won't be without leavened, which is a picture of defilement and a picture of sin. He said that as you go along the way, your life, like a dragnet, it's going to pick up some things that are good and some things that are not. Is because we're in this duality, we're going to experience some good and some bad. And that's just the reality of the life that we are living. So as you grow, you're going to have more market share, but you're also going to have more overhead. There's going to be progress on the one hand, but that progress is going to come with a problem alongside with it. If you have promotion as you progress, you're also going to have more pressure because with promotion comes more pressure. As your family grows, your family becomes more fruitful That's good, but you're also going to need a bigger budget because you have to feed your family and take care of your family. And so there is progress, but that progress is going to bring some difficulty with it. You're going to grow in wisdom. God is going to teach you. You're going to gain understanding. But when you grow in wisdom, you're going to have to have more patience for stupid people. 
Because that's just the reality is when you have more wisdom, you see things a little bit more clearly. And so there's progress, but then there's also problems. And so Jesus taught on that in Matthew chapter 13. But now as Jesus moves into chapter 14, he moves into a season of ministry that really illustrates and demonstrates the principle of what he laid down in chapter 13. Jesus has a mission. His mission is to usher in the kingdom of God, at least the understanding of it. His mission is gaining momentum, but with the movement, there is a mess. And any time there is progress, there are going to be problems. And that's the message tonight as we get into this. The message is problems and progress, because the two things go together hand in hand. And so as we look at these Episodes And really there's four moments that are depicted between the, the segment in chapter 13 and then as we go through chapter 14, four times that Jesus is moving forward in his mission and there's progress, but in each place there are also problems that accompany it. And what we get to see is how Jesus navigated the difficulties that he was going through. And so in the first segment that we saw where Jesus goes to Nazareth, we see that Jesus goes home for the first time in his public ministry. That he is now entering back into the the, the village of Nazareth. Now put yourself there for just a minute. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands or anything, right now currently live somewhere that is different from where you grew up? And that's true for me. You know, I I did not grow up in the Hudson Valley. I grew up in Hilton, New York, which is a suburb of Rochester. And it is called Hilton because it has one hill. It is Hill 10. And the slope, the, the grade of that hill is just a little bit less than the hallway that you walk down to come in here tonight. I mean, it is barely even a hill, you know, but everybody in Hilton knows exactly where it is. And anytime you would have to ride a bike or walk up that hill, you would rather get a ride than walk or ride your bike because I don't want to do that hill, you know. You know, now we live in the Hudson Valley and it's like we call that a hill when we go home. But there's something about what happens when you go home. There's something familiar about the place. There's an air of familiarity that comes over you. You see the places that you used to walk when you were a kid. You have memories of things that happen in certain places. You see the house or the homes or the places that you grew up in. You go through the neighborhoods and you see the houses and maybe how they've changed or maybe how things haven't changed. You see some of the same people. You know, the dentist is 90-something years old. He is still cleaning teeth in hell. Where we, where we grew up, you know, and I remember the smells and everything about it as you just go through. And now Jesus has this opportunity in, in the call, in the plan that God has for him to move into Nazareth, now not as a homeboy, but rather as a prophet bringing to them something that has been given to him to deliver back to them. And I can only imagine what that was like for him. I imagine in his mind that he had a little bit of a script of how he thought it would go. The people would see him. They would see the the people that were beginning to follow him. They have heard somewhat of his fame. And they would be eager not just to hear his message, but to receive from him what he has to give. You know, there would be things like, Jesus was here. Jesus is from here. This is his town. It's like varsity. Division one, champion, you know, kind of a thing. 
And that's what you would almost expect would happen as Jesus comes into Nazareth. And it tells us that when he taught there, they came and they listened. And it even says that they were astonished by his words and his deeds. Now, not necessarily the miracles, but just the way that he was, how he moved and lived among them while he was there. They were astonished at it to the point where they were saying, where did he learn the things that he has learned? How does he have the things that he has? Now, when you're astonished, okay, you can either have hope because, wow, there's something that you can give to me, some way that you can help me, And you would think that's what would happen. I think that's what Jesus was hoping would happen. But that's not what happened. They heard the things that Jesus had to say. And he didn't fit their script of what they thought he would be. And so rather than affirming or receiving, it says that they were offended by what he brought to them. Now, realize, Jesus is different than the last time that they saw him. Because the last time that they saw him, he wasn't Rabbi Jesus. He was still student Jesus. He was still citizen Jesus. He was still growing up in the things, getting ready for the time when the Father would release him into his ministry. But he has since been baptized in the Holy Spirit, called and sent by God, and given amazing power that is different than what he had last time they all saw him. There's a difference in Jesus And what they wanted is they wanted the Jesus that was. They wanted the Jesus that they could more or less control. They wanted Jesus the student, but what they got now is Jesus the teacher. Now, we know the kinds of things that Jesus was teaching, don't we? He was teaching that if you are angry, you have committed murder. If you are lusting, you have committed adultery. And as Jesus, the young whippersnapper who we taught, who was in our Sunday school class, you know, as Jesus begins to say these things with the authority that he had, it began to rub them the wrong way. And rather than receiving, it says that they were offended. Jesus was different. Now, I I experienced this on a much, much, much smaller scale. I remember because, I mean, in some ways, because when I got saved, there there was a huge contrast. I mean, would you realize that when you get saved, things change in your life, right? I mean, your viewpoints change, your outlooks change, your values change, your affections change. Everything about your life takes on a whole different course. You are different after you give your life to Jesus Christ. He comes in and he changes you. And so I was away at college and I had about, what, what's a semester? Two and a half months of growth, learning the word, changing. And, and I know that, that that's not crazy, but it was crazy. There was a lot that happened. And I remember going home and I lived with my mother, my brother, and my sister in Hilton. And I went to a church that Sunday. It was the first time I ever went into this specific church. And I heard the Bible taught and I heard a message on Philippians chapter, I think it was chapter 3. And and it was just the most amazing thing I'd ever heard to hear the word taught the way that it was that Sunday in church. And it just so lit me up. And I thought to myself, I'm going to go home today. I'm going to get my brother, my sister, and my mother. I'm going to sit them down, and I am going to preach this message to them. You know, because it just affected me in such a way. And I thought, there's no possible way that they're going to hear 
me say these things that I say and that they're not going to understand what, where I'm coming from and what I'm saying. So I go home, I get them, I sit them down in my bedroom, on my bed, no lie, and I preached a sermon to them. You know, here I am, 19 years old, and I tell them this whole thing about Jesus is, you know, kingdom of heaven's like an airport, and if you, you, you can live in the airport, you can work in the airport, you can know everybody in the airport, but if you don't have a ticket, you're not getting on the plane, and if you don't have Jesus, you can work in the church, and you can live, you can go to church, you can know everybody at church, you know everything about church, you can know everything about where the planes are going, but if you don't have Jesus, you're not going to heaven, and I thought, do you want Jesus? <laughs> and they were offended. <laughs> They did not receive <laughs> what it was that I wanted to give to them that day. And they said that you're out of your mind. We know you. We have dirt on you. We can tell you things about you. And now you're going to try and tell us what's right and what's wrong. Oh, my, my. So Jesus was rejected. Here's what I've learned. I have learned that when you're moving forward and the people around you are stuck, then they'll resent you and they will try to pull you back. When people see change in your life, oftentimes they won't celebrate, but rather they want to bring back the old version of you because sometimes it makes them feel better. You know, I think of Joseph in the Old Testament, you know, Old Testament Joseph. And he had this great call of God upon his life. There was this coat that was given to him. It was a prophecy of something that God had for him. There was a gift. There was a calling. There was something living inside of him. The coat was the outward. The call was inward. But he had 11 brothers that were jealous of what they saw in his life. And they didn't want to celebrate or come alongside, but rather they wanted to tear down. And so they waited for him at Dothan. And they took his coat and they ripped it off of him, dipped it in blood, and then they threw him in a pit. And so often that's what happens when people around us see change in our lives. They don't want to celebrate it or they don't want to get on board with it, but rather they want to tear it down and they want to bring it down. They want to see us go down with it. Joseph had a call. He was called a dreamer. But God had a plan and God's plan wasn't going to fail. Well, how did Jesus handle this? Because Jesus goes in, how did he handle this rejection? First of all, notice that Jesus didn't play the role that they wanted him to play. They wanted him to be the carpenter, Mary's son, the family man. They wanted him in that role, and Jesus did not come back down. And I say that because isn't it easy sometimes when you get around old, familiar people to fall into the pattern of who you were before you knew Jesus when you're with them? I see it sometimes, you know, you see like a, a grown woman, and a grown woman, when she gets around her mother, she becomes the little girl again. She knows how to fall right back into that role, and somehow the pressure of the atmosphere brings her right back into it. I remember I, I got basically saved between my, my first year of my second semester and my third semester of college. So I, I had that summer, and there was a change in my life. And I remember going back to college after that summer of getting saved, and I was around all of the people that I partied with the semester before. And I remember the battle that it was to not fall back into the role that they were expecting me to play. Like, we know you. This is what we do. We, this is Friday night. This is how we joke around. And it would have been so easy because I knew that role so well for me to just continue in it, just keep playing it. And Jesus didn't do that. They wanted the old carpenter, the good old boy, but he didn't do it. He also didn't let them define him. And I think this is huge. 
See, they wanted carpenter. That was their title. That was the label. You're the carpenter's son. That's who you are. And Jesus refused to wear that label. He said, no, you say carpenter, but God said son of God. God said prophet. God said savior. And so I'm going to walk in what God calls me and not what you call me. See, the thing that makes you and I legit in our call of God is not what people think that we are or what people say that we are, but rather it's very simply what God says that we are. And that's it. There's nothing else. And so sometimes God calls us something before other people can see what that something is. Sometimes God calls us something before we even see what that something is. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. This is what happened to Joseph, right? God called him a prince and a savior, but yet it was a long season before those things caught up with him in his practical life. He had to be a shepherd and a servant and a steward before he could become a savior. And sometimes in our lives, God says things about us and our situation has to catch up with what God has called us because there's a process of bringing us to where we're going. You ever see that proverb that says, he that finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord? Well, God called her a wife before she was a wife, right? I mean, he said she found a wife. Like, that wasn't someone else's wife. She just wasn't married yet when he found her. And so sometimes God calls you something and you're not there yet. Your situation has to catch up with it. But what matters is not what people see when they look at you or say when they look at you, but rather it's what God has spoken over your life. That's what matters. That's who you are. And that Jesus was not going to let them put their titles on him, but rather he knew who he was. And so he would hold to that rather than give them their place. Jesus also didn't try to force them to see what they didn't want to see. Do you notice that it says that he didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief? He didn't say, come on, just give me a chance. I can prove to you that I actually am who you don't think I am. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. I know who I am. God knows who I am. And if they won't receive it, then I'm not going to force it upon them and try and make them see it. There's an equation, it works like this, that persuasion equals consistency over time. In other words, if you want to prove out what you actually are to someone, the way to do it is just be who you are consistently for a long time. And eventually persuasion comes because if something is really going on inside of you, you can't hide it. It's going to come to pass. But if something isn't actually happening inside of you, then you can't fake it. And so if really God is in your life and he's moving in your life, then you don't have to try to prove it to someone else in order to make it validated. You just keep living out what God is working in, and over time, God's going to make it come out and it's going to be seen and known. See, Jesus didn't leave Nazareth when they rejected him. He just continued being Jesus. He probably kept continuing. He was there for a number of weeks while this whole Herod business was going down that we'll talk about in a moment. But he didn't force it. He just continued, and they kept coming, and they probably were continually astonished at the things that he said and the things that they saw. And so just be who you are. And we've seen amazing things. We've been married uh, 20 years. And in, in our 20 years of marriage, we've watched family members persuaded into the things of God, not by the things that we said that were clever, because we tried that and didn't work. But when they saw consistency over time, they were persuaded, especially when God gave them a contrast to what was going on in other people's lives. It didn't make us better. It just made Jesus real. 
And so God will do what he's going to do. Well, it's a progress problem. He goes to Nazareth. He's rejected. He overcomes it. But then he moves forward. It tells us right after that 70 miles to the south, there was a total different opinion of Jesus that was being formulated. See, up in the north, they thought he was nothing. But in the south, they thought he was the reincarnation of Billy Graham. Isn't it amazing that in one place you can be esteemed as absolutely nothing, and in another place they can look at you as way beyond and bigger than what you are? But before you get too, you know, kind of excited about that, realize what was going on in Herod's palace at the time. There was betrayal. There was adultery. There was prostitution. There was corruption. There was bribery. There were honey traps. And if you don't know what that is, just look it up. There was regret and sorrow. I mean, it was, it was the Clinton dynasty in full swing way back in first century Rome. It was bad. That's all just right in the text that you pull out all the things that were going on right there. And then John the Baptist kind of becomes the victim of this slander campaign. He's falsely imprisoned on taxpayer dollars. It's nothing new. Everything kind of keeps going just the way that it is. And then he's killed. And it tells us that in verse, in verse 12 and 13, it says that Jesus heard about the death of John the Baptist And it says that when he heard it, he departed into a solitary place alone. Now, that's amazing to to just realize for a minute. Just imagine Jesus. He's in Nazareth. He's being rejected there, not received. The momentum is fading for a moment. And now he gets word that the voice of God in the south part of the land, John the Baptist, that he has been killed. And it seems like evil is advancing. And Jesus has a setback. There's progress, but there's a problem. And notice that it says that Jesus gets alone. And that's remarkable to me, just to think about that for just a moment, that Jesus said, I'm discouraged and I need a minute. And he leaves where he was and he just gets, gets into a quiet, solitary place. Now, we all understand what it's like to be discouraged, right? We understand rejection. We understand discouragement. You get bad news. You find out that the deal isn't going to go through. You find out that the disease won in someone's life that you care about. You find out about some things going on in the life of one of your kids or one of your grandkids that just breaks your heart. It rips it out of your chest. You find out, I mean, there's so many things that discourage us. And sometimes don't you want to just crawl into a cave and you just say, I quit. I don't want to do this anymore. And to realize that Jesus understands what that feels like to hear news that seems irreversible, that seems detrimental and to just need to get away and to realize that Jesus, the man felt that in his place. Do you realize that there are, there are things that while he was on earth that Jesus didn't know? The Bible teaches that he was fully God, but yet he was also fully man. And when he walked in our shoes, he didn't know everything all the time. There were things that he didn't know. He didn't know, he said the times and the seasons of prophetic events, those were things that were in the Father's hand. He couldn't speak to that. He didn't know. He said he didn't know. He told a couple of his disciples that he didn't know who would sit on his right hand and on his left hand in his kingdom. That was information that he didn't have at that time. 
We know that he didn't know some of the the details surrounding the crucifixion. He even cried out and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There were things that he didn't know in his humanity. The Bible says that he knows the feelings of our infirmities. And one of the biggest infirmities that we have is that we don't know. Right? I mean, how many times do we, 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 we have something going on and we don't care if it goes one way or the other way. We just want to know which way it's going to go. And a lot of times that's the thing that weighs on us is that we don't know. And so here we see Jesus in a place where something happens and he didn't know what. Jesus is asking the question saying, where is God in this? Where's the father in this? Why is this happening right now? Why is injustice winning? Why is progress being impeded? And these are feelings that he's feeling, even though he's Jesus, the son of God. And that's an amazing thing to think about. It makes him familiar with the things that make us groan. Now, I want you to understand this. Jesus was moved by this disappointment, but he was not shaken by this disappointment. Jesus was disappointed by this, but Jesus did not become doubtful because of this. Jesus knew that we often don't know is that earth is not the end of the story. Meaning that just because things happen on earth that we don't like or we don't understand or we can't see why or the outcome of, that doesn't mean that that's the end of the story because earth isn't the end of the story. Bobby shared with us this past Sunday from Isaiah chapter 57. It's really two of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah 57 verses 1 and 2. And it says this. It says that the righteous perishes and no man lays it to heart and merciful men are taken away. No one considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. As God says, he says, listen, sometimes somebody goes, and to you it seems untimely, it seems unfair, it seems unrighteous, it seems too soon. But God knows the exact time of it all. And sometimes we need to consider that there's more to the story in the goodness of God than what we can see in our finite position. And so sometimes it's not up to us. We, we just don't know. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is Revelation chapter 19. And it's verse 1 and 2. And here's why I, I like it so much. is because of the timing of it. Not so much what it says, but when it said. Because when these words are spoken is when everything is all done. That means all God's decisions have been made. Judgment has been meted out. Diseases have been played their course those that were going to get healed got healed those that weren't weren't prayers that were going to be answered were answered prayers that weren't answered weren't answered it's all done at the time of this text and it says this it says that after these things i heard a great voice of many people in heaven saying alleluia salvation and glory and honor and power unto the lord our god watch this for true and righteous are his judgments And then he talks about the judgment of the great whore, which is, you know, revelation cities and and systems and all all that kind of thing. But but here's here's the power of those verses is that when all things are said and done and everyone is in heaven seeing clearly all things, they say, perfect. The way you handled that was perfect. The timing of John the Baptist's beheading was perfect. Perfect. The fact that my prayer went unanswered was perfect. 
Thank you, Father, that you didn't answer that prayer. Thank you, Father, that that struggle wasn't cut short. Thank you, Father, that, that my daughter went through that wicked season of her life in spite of the pain and the pressure that it brought me because now I can see what that did and why that took place and what you were doing in your infinite wisdom. Perfect and true are your judgments. Trustworthy, Lord, are the things that you decide. But it's comforting to know that even Jesus, in the midst of it, said, I got to get away. How did Jesus handle disappointment? We know how he handled rejection. How did Jesus handle disappointment? First of all, understand it's okay to check out if you need to for a season. You know, sometimes we think in the Christian faith, like, get a stiff upper lip, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, don't mourn over the death of a loved one, and just put on your game face and go forward for the glory of God, you know. That's not always the answer. Even Jesus needed to time out a little bit. You don't need to be unfazed by things. But understand this, even with Jesus, is that life didn't stop because things got difficult. Things kept moving. And so it tells us in verse 14 that when the multitudes followed him to the place where it was, it says that Jesus went forth or Jesus went forward. He didn't get stopped stuck in the place of disappointment or of grief over what took place, but rather he moved forward in the middle of it. And understand this, there are going to be disappointments and setbacks in our life, and it's okay if we're affected by it, but if we stop there, then we're going to get stuck. Jesus didn't get stuck. Jesus moved forward. It's going to happen. There's going to be disappointments. Do Do you think that it is an accident or a coincidence that the word success starts with sucks <laughs> or, or that the word message starts with mess. It's not a coincidence because, because you are going to have things that stink on your way to the things that are good. You're going to have messes that are going to lead to the message that you have to give that God is going to produce in your life. But if you stop, then you get stuck. And Jesus didn't deny problems. He just didn't let them derail his purpose. Notice in verse 14 what he did. It says that he saw the people when he went forth the multitude and he was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. He had compassion on the multitudes and he brought healing to them in spite of the pressure and the pain that he was feeling. Now, here's why this is huge. Because Jesus didn't let his pain make him angry at the problem, but rather he let it give him compassion for the victims. Now, what was the problem? The problem was Rome. The problem was Herod. The problem was the swamp. The problem was the banks. The problem was Big Pharma. The problem was the lobbyists. The problem was all the corruption. That was, that was the problem. That's why John was dead. That's why Jesus is hurting right now. But Jesus didn't channel what he was feeling And put the energy towards trying to fix the problem down in the south. He didn't put it there. But rather, he said, I'm going to help those that have need. I'm going to save those that are drowning. And so what Jesus did is that he leveraged the frustration garnered by the problem in order to make progress in his calling and his purpose. Because the kingdom call is not to fix the world, but rather it's to save those that are drowning in it. And that's a real key for you and I, because sometimes we can see the problems in the world and we can spend our energy trying to fix problems that you can't fix. 
But the reality is that God has given each of us something that we can give to someone who's in need to help them in their situation. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't put his energy on trying to fix something that can't be fixed, but rather to help those that are in need. There was a problem. He used it for progress. You say, I get it, but what can I bring when the problem is so great and I am so small? I'm glad you asked that question. Because from there, the disciples say something absolutely amazing in verse 15. After this whole multitude is there, the other gospels tell us it's going on for a couple of days. It says that when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the village and buy themselves food. In other words, the disciples say, look, Jesus, this is great. We're glad that, that, that there's progress here. Multitudes, thousands of people. This is good. But we've been here for two days. We haven't eaten. There's no food. There's nothing around here. We are exhausted. Would you please dismiss this crowd at this point so that they can now go and buy food and we can get just a little bit of rest? Jesus says, no. (laughs) He says, you give them something to eat. Now, this is what I call CrossFit Jesus, okay? Get it? There's a little pun there. CrossFit, Jesus. Because, you know, CrossFit is that kind of thing is that when you think that you've got nothing left to give, you've got something left to give. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying to these guys right here. He's saying, listen, you guys think that you're spent, but in all reality, I want you to do what you think that you can't do. You give them something. You know, some, some, some people want to work for God. They think that that would be a really nice life, you know, <laughs> to work for God. Read this account. And you see what these guys were going through and what Jesus was now demanding of and asking of them. I wonder if in this moment when they heard Jesus say those words, he's like, you give them some. I wonder if some of them were just thinking back to that first day when they were sitting there in the boat and the sun was shining and Jesus came walking, skipping a rock on the side of Galilee, brown flowing hair and soft tan on his face. And he's like, hey guys, come follow me. And they're like, sweet. They drop their nets. They're like, this is going to be awesome. We're going to follow a rabbi. This is, and now they're, sitting here in this moment and they hear Jesus say no 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 you guys feed them (laughs) like fishing sounds a lot better than this at this moment I don't know if I've got it left in me to do this understand something person Christian here tonight is that you cannot go backwards in life and that when you go grow forward in things things are going to grow up around you and the demands upon you are going to increase Your family is going to grow and there's going to be demands with it. Your marriage is going to morph into different things in different seasons and that's going to bring certain challenges with it. Your career and your work is going to unfold and it's going to bring different pressure and different things and different challenges at different times. And it is not going to take long in all of that happening, compounding, that you're going to realize that you're not enough and that you don't have enough to keep everything going that you have in your life. That's just the reality. That's what happens. And if you've been alive more than 10 years outside of your parents' house, you understand that. Is that you realize very quick that you don't have everything that you need to do everything that's being asked of you. We're insufficient to the thing. And so one of the progress problems is insufficiency. 
It's that I don't have enough to give to everything that's demanding of me. Now, the disciples' reaction is natural. They want to draw back. They want to downsize. They want to scale backwards, simplify, slow down. They're saying, this is beyond us. This is too big for us. And they say, Jesus, we need to move backwards. And Jesus says, no, I want you to move forward. And so what they do is what we do. They begin to tell Jesus everything they don't have. We don't have money to feed this group. We don't have food to feed this group. We don't have energy to feed this food for this group. And they're telling Jesus everything they don't have. But Jesus tells them what they do have. He says, bring it to me. See, that's what we have that the world doesn't have. Is that we have a Jesus, a Savior, a God, that can do more with what little we have than we'll ever be able to do even with the abundance that we can get from wherever we get it. He can do more than what we can do. And so Jesus says, bring what you have to me. Now, I love what Jesus does here because it's very practical. You say, okay, I'm being asked to give more than what I can reasonably give. Jesus says, well, take what you've got and bring it to me. So what does Jesus do? The first thing he does is he brings clarity to the situation. He says, okay, seat them down by 50, organize a little bit and realize what you're dealing with here. He gave them something to do. They began to do it. So they organized people in groups of 50. And then it says that he took what was given to him and he began to multiply it. And incrementally, he began to give to them what he had. And as they gave it out, there was sufficient and beyond in order to meet every need that was there. And here's what I found is that that is exactly what Jesus does when we receive the call even though it's beyond what we ourselves have. We bring what we have to Jesus, and then we allow him to give us clarity of what's really going on in our life, and then as he delivers it, we deliver what he gives. And so sometimes I'll go home, and maybe it's a long day here, or maybe it's a Wednesday night, and it's after Wednesday night, and it's like this day's been absolutely crazy, and I get a text message on the way home that says, do you have a minute? And I go, oh, no. I don't have a minute or a word or an ounce. I don't have it. Okay. Or sometimes I go home and I'm just in that mode. You know that mode? I don't know if anybody else has a mode. I have a mode. I get in a mode and I go home and and my wife, you know, we go through the evening and we clean the house and we do the dishes and we put the gems and goods and she looks at me and she says, do you want to do a Bible story with the kids tonight? Do you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> do you want me to answer honestly or do you want me to give you the spiritual answer? You know, no, I don't want to do a Bible story with the kids tonight. You know, here's what I've discovered. Is that the key to having more when you feel like you don't have enough is to just say yes and do what's given you in that moment. And that's when you begin to see him begin to multiply. And so when the text message comes... You can either scale back, no, I don't want to do that right now, and I can't handle, or you can say, yes, I do, I have a minute, you know, and, and then and you take it, and then an amazing thing happens is that you do what God's given you to do, and you realize that you have something that you didn't know you had. Yes, I'll sit on the floor tonight with my boys, and I realize that the time is slipping away, and the sponge that is their heart today is soon going to become the rock that will bounce everything off of it in in just a short while. And so I don't want to get on the floor and tell them a story tonight. No, but I'm going to 
And as I do, the Lord begins to move and speak, and there's connection and relation, and there's revelation, and amazing things happen in that 15 minutes that I sit with them, or even less sometimes on the floor. God begins to just move. What he asks of us is to be willing. See, there is a difference between the storehouse and the supply line. Okay, let me explain what I mean by that. How many of you know the difference between anaerobic and aerobic activity? Okay, exercise. I know this is like one of those things, like please don't talk to me about this right now, but I'm going to talk to you about it for just, just a second. Okay, the aero, anaerobic, right, anaerobic is when you, you start exercising, I don't want to do this. I don't have it in me. I don't want it. This hurts. This is painful. This is horrible. This is hell. This is the devil. Who invented this? God, it's cruel that you made this the way that our bodies come into shape. That's anaerobic, okay? You start to breathe, start to sweat. It burns. You hate it. All of a sudden, reading a book sounds nice. You're like, yes, I want to just, I want to clean something. This is horrible, you know? That's the thing. Then what happens? That's what's happening. Anaerobic is that you are draining your reserves. You are emptying out what has been stored in your cells. But then what happens is that those cells hit rock bottom. They run out of glycogen and whatever. And, and that's why it burns. That's why it hurts because I'm empty. I don't have any more. But then an amazing thing happens is that you keep going because CrossFit Jesus says keep going even though you feel like you've got nothing left to give. And so you keep going, and then your body shifts, and all of a sudden, aerobic respiration begins, and your body begins pulling things right out of your bloodstream and oxygen right out of the air you're breathing at the moment, and all of a sudden, what was burning and difficult suddenly becomes easy, even though nothing's changed. Now, that's true on the physical level, but it also happens on the spiritual is that sometimes we feel, or even on the mental, and we're, we feel like there's nothing left. I've got nothing left to give into this marriage. I've got nothing left to give my kids. I've got, I can't handle one more piece of bad news. And when there's nothing left, Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And, and what, he, what we, we just say, okay. And that's when the supply line takes over from the storehouse. And he begins to move in us. Now, I want you to see how amazing this is. Watch what happens after the fact. Okay, these guys that didn't want to do it, watch what happens in verse 22. It says that straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Leave it up there for just a minute. Do you see that word constrained? It says straightway, right after the 12 basketfuls are, are, are picked up, it says he constrained his disciples. Do you know what that means? It means he agonized. That's the word. He agonized. He had to push them. He had to th shove them into the boat. He says, guys, work day's over now. They're like, no, this is great. Are you kidding? We've got 12 baskets full. We started with nothing. Jesus, we could stay here forever. And she's like, no, no, no. Now it's time to stop. Shut it down. You see what happens? When we just say yes, when our flesh, our body, and everything practical in us says no, Jesus shows up, and there's a whole new stream of strength that we didn't even know existed to the point where he now has to shut us down so that we don't work ourselves to death. It's an amazing thing that happens when we just say yes to the things that he believes, or he says. There's progress in spite of problems. Well, we've got to close this thing down. We keep moving in spite of our insufficiency, and the outcome is that they had more at the end than they did at the beginning. The chapter ends with Jesus going up and sending the disciples down. There's another storm. 
Now, you would think, wouldn't you, they get in the boat, and they, you know what's going to happen. Gonna be, don't you think that if you're one of the disciples, at some point you're like, Jesus, no, I'm not getting in that boat. <laughs> like, every time you ask me to get in a boat, we almost die, and you disappear. Like, I'm not getting in the boat this time, you know. But, but there's an interesting dynamic in, in this, and here's what it is. Is that a storm happens, okay, when two systems collide. Okay, you have like a high pressure and a low pressure, a cold air mass and a warm air mass. And when the two things collide, there's a storm because energy is released. And, and there's something significant in that because storms is huge in the Bible. You see storms and it's the spiritual thing that happens, these storms that happen. And, and here's the thing with storms, okay, is that when you are living in one system, there's a mode, there's a relationship with God, there's an autopilot, there's a, there's, a, there's a system, you've got it, you've got your prayer life, you've got your word life, you've got your family life, everything's going. And Jesus says, I want you to move forward, I want you to progress, I want you to go deeper, I want you to know me more, I want to bring you into different things that are going to draw you closer to what I've made you for. And we say, okay, we say, I want to go forward, I'm going to progress. What happens is that you go from one system, and you're transitioning into another system, and you know what happens when systems collide there's a storm and so storms are a part of progress you cannot progress in anything in life without having some kind of unsettled system thing happen there's going to be a storm but notice that jesus not only shows up in the storm but he shows up in an entirely different way than he did last time remember last time he was sleeping in the back of the boat and they woke him up this time, he's not even in the boat. They think they're completely alone, forsaken, and abandoned. But the way Jesus comes to them is remarkable because he doesn't come in another ship or from the other side to stop the thing. He comes walking out on the water. He doesn't stop the storm this time, not yet. And he calls Peter, who's probably delirious at this point and probably hopes that he'll sink because he's so exhausted. And he says, Peter, you come out. And walk with me on the water. Peter does. You guys know the story. He then freaks out when he sees what he's doing. You ever do that? You're like, why am I doing this? I'm standing on water. And he starts to sink. And he realizes, and then, Lord, save me. And the Lord picks him up. They get back in the boat, and the storm ceases. Why? Why did Jesus do all this? I mean, was he just showing off his God powers? No, here, here's the point. Is that if you're going to move forward, you are going to have complications. If you're going to have progress... With that progress is going to come problems. With those problems are going to come storms. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. But here's what Jesus would have you to understand. Is that whether or not he is sleeping in the back of the boat and he needs to be woken. Or whether or not it means that he has to come walking out on water and defy every scientific natural law that was created in the universe that he himself made. Then he is going to see to it that you make it to where you're supposed to get. And if you notice at the end of the chapter, it says that all of the whole multitudes that came out were healed. His purpose was accomplished. And it always will be. Progress and problems, they go together. You can't avoid it. But if you stop, you'll get stuck. Father, we just pray tonight, Lord, as we look at these things and we, we look at who you are, we want, Lord, your perfect will for our lives. And so we're asking you, Jesus, that you would meet us where we are, that you would supply the things that we need and that you'd help us, Lord, as we endeavor to grow, as we endeavor to move. Jesus, would you please work in us your will and your willingness, Lord, for us to follow what you've called us to. 
Help us, Lord. Meet with us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.